Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. Today we're speaking with Tim Hurd, entomologist specialising in bees since 1985. Wow. Tim has just run the highly popular Australian Native Bee Conference for its third time. Tim has some very interesting stories to share with us today. So welcome, Tim. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Tim, regarding the conference, what kind of topics generally do the speakers talk about and, and were there any standouts for you this year? Uh, it was... It was very broad. Um, we had uh, many topics covered. Uh, I, if I had to say um, that I that there was a standout for me, I would probably say the climate change stuff that, that's being done. Um, so there's a a couple of projects actually um, that have been funded recently, and they're really getting going and making great progress. Where they're they're looking at the thermal tolerance of a range of different native bee species, um, upper and lower thermal tolerances, and from that they can um, they can make predictions about how these species are going to go uh, with a in, in this new world of of climate change, uh, you know, warming climate, drying atmosphere, more extremes of temperature. So I thought that was very exciting. Um, but in addition to that, um, so much, so much uh, really great stuff. So it, I guess an extension of that would be um, some stuff in the, in the more applied native stingless beekeeping area. There's a number of people working on how to monitor environmental conditions in beehives. And from that, tell us uh, which beehive designs are most suitable for, for these species in terms of you know, similar, similar sort of questions in a way, but not so much about a change in climate, but about what's the best materials to use uh, in the construction of a native beehive. So I saw a, a few different designs of, of hives on display in the foyer. Does material such as the type of wood make a difference? Yeah, it does because bees uh, have evolved to, so our native stingless bees are social bees. They're a lot like honeybees in the sense that they live large numbers close together in the confines of, of their nest, a hive, if you like. And uh, they have evolved to, um, to rear their young uh, and, and take refuge at night in this very, um, very protected environment. It's usually in a hollow tree and tree hollows provide very good thermal stability. So it never gets too hot in there. It never gets real cold in there. And the bees themselves uh, engineer um, uh, their hives, the design of their hives and the materials that they collect to, to, uh, to wall off a space for themselves inside a hollow tree uh, also contribute to um, the thermal insulation and the thermal stability in that hive. So they've kind of evolved. Um, this, this nice um, in, within this, this nice nesting space. And so if we take them out of there and put them into artificial beehives, uh, for them to do well, we have to replicate that kind of well-protected, well-insulated, stable uh, environment. And different materials do that to a greater and lesser extent. So 
Obviously, you know, thickness is important, but the insulating properties are important. And there are other aspects to it as well. So, I mean, the hide has to be strong, uh, has to be durable in the elements because these things sit out in the field. Uh, and um, and it has to be more or less, uh, it has to be durable uh, against rot and, um, and rain and um, uh, termite attack. So there's a whole bunch of characteristics that go into the choice of materials and the design of native beehives. Same as honey beehives. Wow. And do the designs for native beehives differ a great deal from the designs for European honeybees? They are quite different. I mean, honeybees, um, the bees themselves are bigger, plus the nests are bigger. So they've got more bees per nest, bigger bees. The whole volume of the nest is greater. And that, that extra... Uh, volume, that extra biomass of bees uh, helps them to, to provide some of that thermal stability themselves. So when it gets cold inside a nest, the bees can shiver, like, just like humans do. We, you know, we, we contract our muscles very quickly to warm us up when we're cold, and bees can do that too. Um, so that, that warms the whole nest. And then if it's, they've got an insulating home, uh, insulated home, then that can hold that, that heat in. And the other trick that honeybees have, which stingless bees do not, uh, is this ability to keep themselves cool in summer by uh, evaporative, evaporative cooling. So that's basically what humans do. We sweat when we get cold. We sweat. We, we excrete uh, moisture under our skin. We stand in the, in the breeze if we can. That breeze evaporates that moisture off our skin and that cools us down. Honeybees do a similar thing where they collect water from the environment. They, they drink it up. They take it back to the nest. They spit it out. They regurgitate it. And then they fan their wings. And that helps to cool the nest down. So honeybees, these, um, you know, we're not talking about our native bees now. We're talking about the introduced European honeybee. It's a, you know, it's a fantastically successful uh, insect that survives over very large parts of the world, thrives over very large parts of the world. And part of that is, is, its, is its strength and its ability as a strong, large colony to maintain nest conditions, very stable. Now, coming back to our stingless bees, they're smaller, they can't thermoregulate as much. There's not as many of them to get a critical mass of, of animal that's all metabolising synchronously to generate the sort of heat that you need to create that warmth. Um, and then they don't have that trick of thermoregulating, of, of evaporative cooling as well. So both when it's hot outside and cold outside, they, don't, they aren't as good at maintaining the temperatures in the nest. So we have to do that for them. We have to provide them with well-insulated homes. And we have to position their nests well as well. So, you know, we can't just stick them out in a, in, a, in, a, in a field, an open field. There's a good chance that they would overheat and probably do well most of the time, but then you get an extreme heat day and that could, that could kill them. So, um, yeah, we do have to position them well and we have to provide them with well-insulated homes. And we have to look after our bees too, make sure that the colony stays, stays strong because if they, if they get weak and they lose the numbers, they don't have the bees to, um, to, to maintain their their conditions, then they, they can, that can send them into a decline too. Well, I don't want to get bogged down in the varroa mite issue, but it's a big one now that it's uh, arrived. And um, 
there seems to be varying reports on on how well it's been contained. Um, what's your thoughts on on that? Yeah, sure. Well, the varroa mite is, um, you know, as far as news goes in the bee world, it doesn't get much bigger than this, and it's only only broke last week, so it's very very big news for us, and it's something that we've been preparing for for a long time. Um, I mean, there's not a lot of resources that go into this preparedness for ver- for the, um, I mean, you know, the whole area of um, pollination of crops has, has not really been well-funded in this country traditionally. Uh, but in, in, in recent years, there has been a recognition that varroa mite is, is on our doorstep and we really need to get prepared for that. Um, so there, there has been uh, a, a boost of funding. And, um, and so we, are, we certainly are in a better position to be able to cope with it. But um, as far as the mite goes, look, I, I'm not going to say whether or not I, I believe it's able to be eradicated or not. I don't, you know, I don't know enough about the circumstances on the ground. What I do know about this mite is that it's a very good invader. It's spread around the world very fast. When it gets in, it's pretty much impossible to get rid of. Uh, so hopefully we've found it at the very early stages of establishing. And um, that, well, before, hopefully it has not established, but we've got it in the very early stages of it invading and, and we can eradicate it and stop it establishing. But it's going to come in again and we're going to be faced with the same situation. And people have been saying for many years that it's not a case of if, but when. And, um, you know, this may be the when or maybe down the track it's, probably going to happen so um where do where do we stand at it from the point of view of native bees um is that uh i mean it's very hard to predict the outcome of any uh ecological invasion so we've got a mite um and uh you know we've got the australian environment and we've already introduced european honeybees to the australian environment so that's one invasion if you like I mean, it's one that helps us as humans. It's a bee that provides us with our honey and it also pollinates a lot of our crops. But um, it also, um, it it colonises our natural ecosystems as well. So I think um, many people have, you know, see honeybees as being a little bit of a, a, a two-edged sword, that it's it's a great friend. Um, in the sense of, um, you know, as a pollinator and a honey producer, but it's also, uh, it has negative impacts for the natural environment. And look, you know, it's hard to prove what the extent of those um, negative impacts are. So basically the main ones are competition for the food and for nest sites. So honeybees uh, harvest a lot of floral resources. So the food, uh, the bee foods that, uh, provided on flowers, pollen and nectar uh, are harvested by honeybees in large quantities. So does that have a negative impact? Does that competition for resources have a negative impact on uh, native animals? Not just bees, but anything that eats flowers, like bats, for example, very important uh, part of their diet uh, is the honey and or the nectar, I should say, and pollen from uh, eucalypts in particular, but other uh, plant species too. So. Um, Floral resources are important food sources for many native animals and we've got honeybees and to some extent it's hard 
it's hard to it's it's almost certain that there's competition um, between honeybees and our native animals. So that's food resources, but there's also nest sites. So you know, hollow trees are very important homes for many of our native mammals, in particular, and our native stingless bees. And honeybees tend to move into them. Uh, they tend to to dominate them. They're very fierce stinging insects, so they can drive everything else out. So it's quite likely that they compete with many native animals for nest sites as well. So um, we, you know, we have this kind of love-hate relationship with honeybees in many ways as, as, as pollination biologists, as people who, you know, we love studying these interactions between bees and plants. Um, there's an applied side to it. it m- much of our food relies on that. And so, you know, if, if you like eating, then you've got to be interested in that process. Um, if you, you know, if you, if you believe in, um, the importance of feeding the the the, the globe, then uh, you, you have to be um, you know you know you have to be cognizant of the importance of that process. Um, but at the same time, we as uh, humans are find ourselves in the situation where we're dominating our planet, where we find ourselves as custodians of our planet, um, and we find ourselves in charge of the preservation and conservation of the remaining natural parts of our planet. And, uh, and so we're trying to keep those, those natural ecosystems in good condition, as well as our environment, as our agricultural ecosystems being productive. So balancing the productivity of our agriculture with the, the nature conservation aspects of um, those parts of our environment are two things that weigh, weigh very heavily, I think, on, on, concert, on uh, pollination biologists and as, as well as many other biologists. So... So in, in that context, so I, I guess that's background. Within that context, we have a, a, the honeybee and we have native bees, and they're all capable, they're both capable of pollinating our crops. Now, when the mite comes in, it's almost certainly going to really badly knock around honeybees. Um, so particularly feral honeybees. So feral honeybees, as I mentioned, they go wild and they enter our natural ecosystems and they, they, they nest there and they feed on our natural bushland. Um, particularly in those places, bromite's going to get to and it's going to, it's going to damage those populations of honeybees. That's the track record everywhere in the world. Where, honeybee, where the bromite has gone, they've, um, they've, uh, they've, they've, they move very quickly between nests of honeybees and they invade those nests. They, they're like a, like a giant tick, if you like. You imagine you go bushwalking, you get a tick on you, it sticks its mouth parts in, it sucks your body um, uh, fluids. And uh, in, in most cases, in the, in the case of a tick on a human, it doesn't normally do a lot of damage. But the, a varomite on a honeybee takes a lot of, um, a, a large amount of the, the bee's body, um, fat body, and probably some of the hemolymph as well, so the blood and the and the fat and the vital internal organs of the bees, and they make them a lot less uh, healthy. Um, the colonies go into decline, and they usually die out within a certain time. So you're going to have we're going to see the death of a lot of feral honeybee colonies in our natural environment. Now, what's the consequences of that? Well, it depends. If you are a farmer who relies on feral populations of honeybees that come out of the bush near the farm to pollinate your crop, then it's going to be a very negative consequence for you. If you're a honeybee keeper, um, so that's that's the feral situation. But 
the other potentially, uh, I guess, the other aspect of it is that that will reduce competition on the native bees, which may, to some extent, replace the honeybees in providing that pollination service. So it's going to depend on the crop. It's going to depend on the ecosystem. It's going to depend on the local native bee species present. Um, but um, that there could be, to some extent, a replacement of honeybees by native bees for crop pollination. So where, where that all pans out and bounces in the end is, is very hard to know. But I guess there are another aspects of this as well, um, if you want me to go on, um, and that is the major damage that this mite does is not direct attack on bees, um, and it can only attack honeybees. That's the other point, of course. This mite can only attack honeybees. It cannot attack native bee species directly. However, it spreads viruses. Um, so, you know, just like human diseases like malaria have a vector, the mosquito, which moves the, which moves the, the pathogen from one individual to another, so do honeybees have viral diseases that, um, that get moved from honeybee to honeybee very effectively by this mite as a vector. So what we see everywhere in the world where the viral mite gets in is a much higher level of pathogen load, of viral load. So the, the, the quantity of virus particles in that bee goes much higher. And we know that those viruses can spread to other bees. So, uh, and, and there's very good evidence that where honeybees get hit by viral mite, viral, viral loads go up and the viral loads in other native bees in that environment also go up. So there's a way that this introduction is going to have a negative impact on our native bees. Wow, I didn't know that. I don't think it's that well known to the general public either that the pathogens are spread. Are there any varieties of our bees that are immune to these pathogens? We just don't know. We have done very little study in this area. We've, you know, I know I'm aware of one study where they looked at um, the viral loads in honeybees and accompanying native bees in various landscapes in New South Wales, and that was the result they found. Now, they looked at five native bee species, and there's 1,650, approximate number of native bee species in Australia. So we've only done the research on this very small fraction. But the result from that study was that, yes, it definitely can happen. Um, to what extent that then affects those native bees? Again, it's a little bit unknown. So, you know, there's... It, it, it's really um, it's really guesswork. We we really are just guessing what might happen as a result of the introduction of this of this mite into our country. Wow! Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, that's that's awesome. What you've just done uh, in in really laying out a clear picture and a, and a very comprehensive picture of of everything all the ramifications of, of the varroa mite. Do they believe this uh, strain or, or iteration that's come through uh, on the central coast in Newcastle, is that, would that have been on a shipping container or something, uh, some such sort of transport yeah, like that? most likely. Most likely it was a, uh, a colony of bees that was in a shipping container, probably European honeybees, and it's jump ship, 
and support the mic with it. And uh, when they do jump ship, how far can they travel? I'd be very long distances. I believe the longest distance recorded for a honeybee colony traveling from its old nest to a new nest is 100 kilometers unassisted. So they, they moved, they flew through the environment for that far to find the new nest site. Man, that's mm. incredible. So that's why the big, big perimeters are set up, um, you know, kilometers and kilometers around where they're found. Yeah, I was wondering about that, like how far do they have to go to set up uh, some sort of or attempt at containment? Yeah. You mentioned there isn't a lot of research going on um, in, you know, generally about, uh, about pollinators in this country, um, but there still is, I'm sure, some quite remarkable search projects that are being funded in bees. And is there anything you can talk to me about any of those? Yeah, sure. There's um, there's lots of lots of fantastic research, as you say. So um, the University of Queensland, it's been a lot been done at the University of Sydney, the University of uh, uh, Western Western Sydney University, um, University of Adelaide. UNE, University of New England. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been even up in far north Queensland at James Cook University. Um, there's, there's, so it's been dispersed around the country. Um, and, you know, some interesting research is, is around, um, so I've mentioned the, the research on pathogens, but um, so that's kind of, you know, talking about the, the effects of natural enemies on bees. That might be what we call top-down uh, impacts, but if you look at bottom-up impacts, so food su supplies and food sources. So that's one of the big issues with bees that you know they um, they need a constant supply of food, and the environment doesn't always provide that. Particularly in our agricultural ecosystems, where there may be large expanses of just one crop species that flowers just for a particular time of year, short time of year, and that provides an abundance of food, but then not much else for the rest of the year. But you can improve um, the food availability by, uh, by modifying your environment. So, you know, you can do things like, well, if you've got bushland, protect it because that's, that's gold. That's, that's a fantastic resource for bees. That provides diversity and continuity of food resources with the many species that naturally occur in native bushland. But uh, even in an agricultural ecosystem, um, you can you can do things like uh, you can you can plant in land that may be fallow for one reason. There might be a bit of a ridge line where where nothing will grow. Well, you can you can grow some eucalypts up there, and they provide um, food at some times of the year. And there might be some some uh, you know riparian bushland. You can grow some paperbarks along there, which provide food. There might be a, a strip of land that you can plow up and put in a crop of um, sunflowers or a crop of cabbages and let them go to flower or uh, so you, you can you can cultivate land you can protect natural bushland and the other technique is you can manage pastures because many uh many what we call forbs so little flowering plants that exist within our grasslands um, and often between rows and tree crops or around the edges of farms uh, they're very rich sources of food for bees. So, you know, all kinds of things like daisies and wild cabbages and, and, um, and plants like, like that um, can be allowed to grow on the floor of an orchard, for example. And then you can manage those. So you can, uh, you can, you can 
slash them just before your crop flowers so that they are no longer providing food for bees, which then look elsewhere for food, and that uh, forces them onto your crop, um, and which they'll find, and they'll, they'll utilise that instead of um, the, the resource that's gone. So um, that's a way of managing your the wild pollinators that are present on the farm. I guess there's a, a bit of a trend for people to, uh, to move away from the old suburban Aussie cut lawn at the front of the house and the back of the house and uh, just sowing wide, wildflowers and, uh, and even weeds, or what we call weeds. Have you heard of this? Is this a, a good thing to do to encourage the, uh, the wild bees and the, and the, yeah, and the pollinators? Yeah, it is. Um, so often that, that's, you're right, that's all you need to do. Just don't mow your lawn and you will get species that, that come up. And, uh, you know, grasses don't provide food for bees or very little, very poor. So grasses are wind-pollinated plants. They're not evolved to attract insects. They don't, they don't produce nectar uh, as, a, as a, an attractant for bees. And the pollen that they produce um, is very low in protein, so it's very poor nutritionally for bees. So um, if you see bees using harvesting the heads of grasses, you know that times are pretty tough because they'll only do that as a last resort. So um, gr grasses are, are not particularly... Uh, nourishing for bees or productive for bees so but you do get lots of other species coming up naturally in grasslands so yeah if you don't cut those grasslands they will come up and they will flower and and that often provides that uh that food for bees so yes just not mowing but you do have to be careful because there are uh plant species that um do need to be managed because they are weeds they uh they cause problems when they're growing crops because they um they compete uh, with the crop so you know the farmer's trying to grow a crop of of wheat and if there's a whole bunch of wild radish in there that's growing and taking nutrients and taking water uh, away from the root from the wheat then you'll get a that can reduce your your yield so yeah some of those weeds are crop pests some of them are environmental weeds too they get into our bushland and they um and they uh invade our bushland they reduce diversity they um they dominate, they, they result in a, a bushland with less diversity and less productivity than what it would be naturally. So there's a little bit, you do have to be careful there that uh, if you are allowing weeds to grow, that um, you're, that's not creating a problem either to agriculture or to the natural environment. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So we shouldn't be just indiscriminately thinking that, all weeds are cool and, you know, we can just sow whatever we want. We need to do it um, with a little bit of research in mind as to how it's going to affect the, the surrounding agriculture and the surrounding environment. That's, that's good to know. Um, <clears throat> all right, well, we're, we've pretty much covered a lot. There's just a couple of questions I, I, I wanted to, to ask you, Tim, in the, in the time, uh, the many years that you've been involved um, with I imagine the public and some uh, in an educational role um, about bees and about pollinators, what what are the most common questions, or is there one particular common question that you are asked about bees um, um, that you can you know like right at the moment we're in midwinter and uh, for the last month or so people have we've, we've had a, a lot of uh, traffic emails and phone calls and we've seen Facebook posts where people are saying oh my 
my bees have died. I'm so disappointed. I've been nurturing them all summer and and now there's absolutely no activity and I'm sure they're dead. And all, all that's happening is that they're just not coming out of their hive because it's too cold. So uh, <laughs> they don't come out until it's 18 degrees. And there's a lot of Australia that's um, below 18 degrees at the moment. I think you know Brisbane today was a bit like Melbourne. I think we had about a 13 or 14 degree maximum in Brisbane today. It was a very cold day for here. And no, no, no bee activity whatsoever. So yes, that's that's a, that's a winter question. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess um, yeah, we get plenty of other questions too. So I would say the two other main ones we get are uh, one is this. Uh, they're both very interesting behaviours um, that are exhibited by native bees, but not by honeybees. And one of them is fighting swarms, and the other one is seed collection. Now, the fighting swarms is this interesting behaviour where hives uh, attempt to take over uh, other hives. So they will attack a, a, a strong hive of native stingless bees. Um, you know, we often think of these bees as very gentle, little native bees that, you know, just only do good and, you know, they, they're stingless and they're vegetarians. You know, bees are all vegetarians. And, you know, we think of them being like little Mahatma Gandhi, you know, vegetarian pacifists. But in fact, they've got this... Um, this very uh, aggressive side of their behaviour where they really go hard to take over the colonies of other bees and, and they fight and they die in thousands, in tens of thousands in some cases. So sometimes you think, I never knew there was that many bees in my colony and now they're all dead on the ground in front of them, dying in biting, in, in, like in grappling fighting bees that are just dying um they you know once they bite onto each other uh they they don't let go they die that way and it's it's a numbers game there's a these invading bees are just trying to get the upper hand kill as many defenders as they can get in install their queen and take over that whole nest they get the whole going concern they get the space all of the food even the brood the young bees in there they emerge, they allow them to emerge, and they become a slave force for the attacking bees um, that then just because they, you know, bees are kind of like little robots, really. They're born, um, you know, wanting to get stuck into it and get working and, and defend and protect their nest, and they just do that, even if the nest has been taken over by a foreign colony. So the fighting behaviour is just an extraordinary uh, aspect of their biology that is quite traumatic for some people when they first see it, and they don't know what to do about it. We do have ways of managing it now, so that, that's, <laughs> that's a big advance. So, yeah, we do have a technique that involves taking the hive under attack away and replacing it with an empty box properly prepared, and that provides a pretty good chance of, of capturing those attacking bees. So that simultaneously gets your hive under attack out of the firing line and potentially allows you to capture a second hive. So, yeah, you can turn it around to your advantage as a beekeeper. And is that behaviour only particular, particular to Australian native bees or does that happen with the honey, the European honeybee as well? Do they... It does not happen with the European honeybee. It's known to happen in the ant world, so some ant species um, attack uh, other ant species for various... They're slave-making ants that attack other plant species and make take make off with the the young of those species, which they then rear 
in their nest as a slave workforce for them. So there's lots of interesting behaviors like that in the social bee world, but um, in the social insect world, but um, this is the, the most extreme example of it in terms of the, the just the, uh, the amount of resources that these bees put into these battles. I mean, these are, these are the bee equivalents of, of world wars. They're just, they're, they're just very, you know, all or nothing type, type, um, type battles where, you know, you, you gotta, they fight to the bitter end. That's, I, I had no idea any of that went on. Uh, I mean, I, I had heard about ants being more like, you know, warring armies, uh, soldier ants, things like that. But um, <clears throat> I had never heard of the bees. So is there anything you wanted to suggest to citizen scientists or anybody interested in uh, in native bees or bees in general? Uh, well, there's a really interesting citizen science project coming up at the University of Queensland uh, if you've got a hive of native bees. And... Um, this is um, a project that is aimed at helping us understand a bit more about how these hives reproduce. So uh, they, they reproduce by um, setting up a new colony elsewhere. And when, you, when that happens, you can observe bees uh, not just coming back to the hive with resources or the hive, but leaving the hive with resources they're taking to another hive. So there's a project um, that's asking people who've got a hive of bees to observe their bees every at certain intervals and uh, and try and document this behaviour, let record whether you're seeing it happening or not, just to get a bit of an idea of just how common it is, how frequently the average nest does that. So that's um, I can uh, if you go to. University of Queensland School of Biological Sciences, um, Tobias Smith, Dr. Tobias Smith. There, he's um, he's running, and and Gap and Gurian Ong as well are running that citizen science project. Well, listen, thanks so much, Tim, for taking the time once again. Uh, we've really enjoyed and been enlightened by a lot of your revelations here today. Um, I hope we can uh, we can have a, a second run sometime soon. Anytime. I'm happy, as you can, as you probably gathered, I, I'm happy to talk bees online. <laughs> You've been listening to Citizen, 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 Citizen Science, Citizen Science Show.